podcast two, Art and Crisis. I'm Helen Marriage, director of Artichoke, a creative company that invades public spaces with extraordinary art. Our work explores how art can change the daily routine and rhythm of a city, interrupting traffic and trade to offer unforgettable experiences to audiences. As part of Great Fire 350, which marked 350 years since the Great Fire of London, Artichoke produced a festival of arts and ideas, London's Burning, which included art installations, spectacular events and a talks programme. This podcast series features a selection of our London's Burning Talks and gives a contemporary perspective on a significant moment in the city's history. The talks were presented in historic sites, financial hubs and buildings that survived the Blitz. Join us in conversations about how cities past and present have responded to crisis. For this podcast, we're at Broadgate, home to some of the world's biggest corporations. For the duration of London's burning, Broadgate was also home to Holocenes, a five-hour underwater performance installation inspired by the modern threat we all face from rising water levels as a result of climate change. Here I explore the theme of art and crisis with the artistic director of early morning opera Lars Jan and the co-director of arts admin Judith Knight. We'll talk about how we use art to respond to the issues impacting our world today and the role of art in addressing global disasters. You'll hear each of us introduce ourselves and our work. The first person you'll hear is me. The formation of the company was a bit of an accident in that all I wanted to do ever was to produce the work of this extraordinary French company, Royal Deluxe, who I'd seen for about 20 years touring Europe with their enormous sagas um, that involve huge mechanical creatures and big audiences and an invasion of public space. And I kept wondering why nobody more grown up than me hadn't invited them to the UK. I kept thinking the Edinburgh Festival would get brave or uh, the National Theatre would decide to move outside the building or somebody who had some power and status and ability to produce on a scale um, that was rare would take this company and invite them to come to Britain. And then one day, as Judith will say, after one of my many sackings, <laughs> I was kicking about at home thinking, oh, what do I do with my life? And decided that maybe nobody was going to and that we would start a company that would deliver this incredible production uh, in London. Did anyone see it? <laughs> Yay! So the sacking took place in 1999 and we delivered this in 2006. And that tells you how long it took to persuade everybody that closing the streets of London for the public, for a thing that wasn't about anything. It wasn't a ceremonial event, it wasn't a governmental event, it wasn't celebrating the Entente Cordiale between French and Britain, it wasn't, it wasn't anything that anybody could name as a, and there was no reason for doing it. Why would you do this? The agencies kept saying to me and I kept saying, why wouldn't you? and showing them pictures and going, it'll be like this. So this is what you see, this is the last day. This was a million people who turned out on the streets and this was Artichoke's first event. And the amount, if we're looking at the Great Fire of London programme and the issues that surround it, the amount of risk that it took, not only for us, we were risking everything, but for all of those agencies, all of those people to say yes to something that they couldn't imagine but they had to be persuaded was not a bad thing to do, was amazing. And we went from that, that massive thing, to this apparently tiny thing. We did a few things in between, but this is um, Anthony Gormley's fourth plinth project called One Another, where for 
um, 2,400 hours, which equates to three and a half months, we elevated a single person picked at random from the 35,000 people who applied to be in the project. We elevated them onto the top of the fourth plinth, a place normally reserved for a piece of temporary sculpture that lives there for 18 months. Anthony's project was for 100, and day, 100 days and nights. If you can imagine what you were doing three and a half months ago, so here we are in September, August, July, June, middle of May, and if you can imagine that you've ever organized an event or a party or a wedding reception or something, and then if you imagine doing that non-stop for all of that time since the middle of May, you begin to understand the complications and the logistics around this project. As, at Anthony's insistence, it was never to be left unoccupied. And right through the night, whatever the weather, uh, a single person had to appear on that plinth. There were four rules, which was one person at a time, one hour, carry with you anything that you could yourself carry and nothing illegal, which got us into all kinds of interesting positions. Um, so 2,400 people took part, but what was interesting was, as well as this mass participation project, it became a sort of viral sensation. Nine million hits on the website, which kept, we had to keep buying more bandwidth in order to accommodate the numbers of people. When one of our nine strippers went up, that was the issue about illegal, uh, she crashed the website. It was <laughs> hilarious. Uh, lots and lots and lots of debate about whether it was art, whether it wasn't art, whether it was a legitimate use of this ceremonial space. And it became really an interesting project to have worked on. How far can you push this idea of ownership of public space, that it should be owned by the public, not by cars or by uh, those who would keep our lives sticking to a particular routine? We love the idea that cities are not machines simply for toil, trade and traffic but are places where people can inhabit those spaces, share that space with others, and perhaps in the transformation of the physical environment, themselves be transformed forever. This is uh, our Lumiere project, which we started in Durham. This is lovely Durham Cathedral, a thousand years old, uh, which, in which we returned the Lindisfarne Gospels, which were painted by a single monk over a period of 40 years back to the northeast of England because they're housed currently Elgin marbles like in the British Library. So we thought that we would return them to their home. And this again is a, is a project where we take the physical spaces, the extraordinary iconic buildings of Durham. It's a medieval city with an enormous number of listed buildings and we transform them over a period of four nights in order to um, offer the city back with a different perspective and in terms of perspective, this is a piece that we did uh, last year in March 2015 with the American artist David Best, who's a habitué of uh, Burning Man, the Burning Man Festival in the Nevada desert. It was a piece in which we wanted to explore the conflict which still exists in Northern Ireland. This is a, this is a slide from um, Derry, Londonderry, where David uh, had worked with us over a number of months to bring together a community of builders who could work with him and his American team both to create this uh, amazing temple and then to situate it on this land. The, the temple is itself amazing but where it is and the fact that you're seeing all these people even more so. This is um, a piece of no man's land called the top of the hill and it sits in a Republican enclave inside a Protestant housing estate and was considered by everybody when we proposed it as a site for this piece as a no-go area, too dangerous, nobody would ever come. 
in fact, what you see is the beginnings of 60,000 people who came over five days. And they used the temple in a way to get rid of the grief and pain of the past and express their hopes for the future. So the temple, it was completely inscribed with their memories and messages and hopes and dreams and an enormous amount of what you might describe as post-traumatic expressions of anguish. It's a real post-conflict society and those tensions have never gone away despite 20 years of a peace process. So this is the Saturday night when we with their help in front of 15,000 people incinerated the whole thing uh, to let it all go. It was very interesting. I got a text from a woman who's a community worker on the top of the hill and she said in this text she said the last time the world's press came to the top of the hill was for the 1976 massacre at Annie's Bar that you're all too young to remember but I remember when uh, Protestant gunmen went into a bar on the edge of this estate and shot seven, six or seven people who were drinking on a Saturday afternoon. And then her text continued and it said, now we've shown them that we're not like that. And it was an extraordinary cathartic and moving thing. So David's work is something that we're uh, continuing on with in our London's Burning Festival because it seemed silly not to have an expert burner at the heart of it. But there are six pieces, public-facing pieces, in the festival. This is uh, the wonderful of all the people in all the world, which you can find in the ex very wonderful, sort of slightly hidden away space of the Great Hall of the Inner Temple, a place that survived the Great Fire. And this is Stan's Cafe, who are examining the statistics around the Great Fire, each representing each person as a grain of rice. So you'll find a single grain of rice on a page which says Christopher Wren. And next to it, you'll find a page which says number of deaths in the Great Fire, and you'll have six grains of rice. And you'll think, really? Is that all that died in the Great Fire of London? And next to it, you'll find a space that says number of people made homeless by the Great Fire. And you'll see a pile of 80,000 grains of rice. And you'll begin to think what 80,000 people in these times, this restoration period, represented, a fifth of the city living in refugee camps in Islington and Highgate as people from the Italian earthquake through the um, troubles in the Middle East are now living in temporary accommodations. And you'll begin to think about the parallels which are also explained in this wonderful piece. And then St Paul's Cathedral, the great Wren masterpiece that literally rose out of the ashes of the old cathedral. And um, we decided that we would use it as it symbolically stands. I don't know if you know, but there are, you're not allowed to impede the views of St Paul's Cathedral when you build a skyscraper here. Absolutely not allowed. It has what's called protected views, viewing corridors. And so what better thing to do than to show the moment of the Great Fire by projecting with Martin Farrell on the, on the dome of the, of the cathedral. This is a diptych, so one piece is here and one piece is on the fly tower of the National Theatre. And the National Theatre piece has the fire and flame, but it describes other cataclysmic events in London's history from 1666 through to the present day, encompassing issues of slavery, suffragism, LGBT rights, all kinds of things, and finishing with the um, extraordinary statement from Joe Cox before she died saying there is more that unites us than divides us. I really urge you to see it. It's a 25-minute loop. It's absolutely extraordinary. And then there's this, which you might have noticed if you've been walking down the Victoria Embankment. This is the piece that uh, involves David. David Best designed this artist's impression of 17th century London. It's the skyline and some of the buildings are recognisable. This is the Great Hall at the other end of St Paul's Cathedral. And this work has been put together just as in Derry by a workforce of young uh, people recruited from 
the boroughs that surround the rich city of London but are themselves rather poorer, so Tower Hamlets, Hackney, Islington, Camden, Southwark, Newham. And we started with the very little kids. I don't know if you can see, but these little discs here, they're a metre meter high. We asked children aged seven what they would do for the future of London, were such a thing to happen again. And we got these marvellous little drawings which said, well, sensible things that said less pollution or every house should cost 5p. <laughs> but my particular favourites were ice cream helicopters. <laughs> Who knew that's what we needed, but clearly we do. And my absolute favourite was more cheese. <laughs> so these discs have been then taken by the young people that we've recruited. They've had CNC cutting training, they've done all kinds of carpentry stuff, and they've cut these into these metre-high discs which surround the structure. On Sunday night at about 8.30, we are going to incinerate the whole lot in a most beautiful theatrical pyrotechnic moment. Right, that's me done. Good afternoon, everyone. Hi. So let's see. Um, my name is Lars Jan, and uh, I'm the artistic director of something which is called Early Morning Opera, which is mostly an idea. It's um, I call it a performance and art lab, and um, it's a it's a group of people, some of whom collaborate with each other regularly, and we always also fold in new folks. And a lot of the folks that we fold in to collaborate on our projects. Um, don't uh, have artistic backgrounds and wouldn't call themselves artists as well. And some of the projects are really big, like the one I'm about to talk about, Holocenes, um, which is part of this festival, London's, London's Burning. Um, I also just want to say, um, I feel like it's very special for me to sit between these two people, because I really admire the work that you both do very much. And maybe five years ago, as I was thinking about this project and trying to figure out how I might pull it off, I found myself in the hallway between their offices and I talked to a gentleman, Mark, who's over here. Hi, Mark. Um, about this idea, and uh, which has become Holocenes, and and I thought, uh, and we sort of like fell out of touch. And I just find it very interesting that that hallway has like led to sort of actually rather than being between the doors, being between Helen and Judith, um, all this time later. So um, this is a photograph by one of my favorite photojournalists working in the world today named Daniel Barahulak. And it's a picture taken in um, 2010 in northern Pakistan. And it's, um, if you look at it for a moment, if you try to sort of sort out what's going on, it was on the front page of the New York Times and it really gripped me. Um, and I think what happened is that it really triggered something that had latently um, I'd been conscious of ever since the flooding in Hurricane Katrina. But I had been absolutely captivated by images of the human body deluged with water. And um, the incidences of flooding and the coverage of flooding that was, a, that was getting to me around, from around the world, I, I either hadn't been paying attention before that, or f you know, flooding was growing worse, or coverage of it was changing. Um, but in this picture, what's happening is uh, the photographer is in a helicopter with the Pakistani military, and they've just dropped food aid in wooden crates into this massive plain that's been flooded, which is full of dead bodies, dead cows, feces, etc. And what's happened is the crates have smashed open, 
and the food is and the food and water is sinking into this like terrible soup and the people the villagers are trying to save salvage whatever they can before it disappears and so you see these two long dark shadows in the water there that's from the helicopter blades and um, Incidentally, I'm actually half Afghan and Pashtun. Um, my mom came to America when she was about 30. Um, so that might have something to do with the sort of power of this image, because I've been in northern, northern Pakistan and Afghanistan. And so and I actually sometimes show a picture of um, like some Raphael paintings of Christ, because it, like Raphael and this photograph meld perfectly. And I always love that um, Pakistanis dressed like Jesus used to. And um, there's something, and what I'm, you know, what I'm getting at is there's something tremendously beautiful about the photograph too. So it's depicting a horrific situation, and yet at the same time, um, there's something classically just gorgeous about the composition, the color, the drama. And I had a, uh, after becoming captivated by the image and being viscerally really affected it, by it, I also had a lot, some guilt about the fact that I think the reason that this image is on the front page of this magazine is because it's a really pretty picture of a terrible thing of some people very far away. And isn't that problematic? And what is the relationship between beauty and horror and delivering horror t from, from far away places to us? Um, and so um, as I did more research into sort of um, that trend I was talking about, about flooding, I, I actually f came upon this word that I don't think I'd ever heard before, which is hol the Holocene, which is the geologic epic that perhaps we're still living in right now. It's been around for 10 or 12,000 years, depending on, he, on who you ask. And we may have just moved into a new geologic epic called the Anthropocene. It was on the, gar you know, the cover of The Guardian a couple days ago, um, which is the first geologic epic that has ever been initiated by a species on the planet. And it's usually, those geologic epics usually last on, you know, it's like the Jurassic, the Pleistocene, like these, uh, these time frames, which are tens and, and hundreds and, and millions of years long. And suddenly, we humans are affecting this very complex biosphere on a level previously only measured on that timeline. <laughs> and the timeline that we think we're operating on is days and weeks and uh, you know, minutes, hours. And if we're very, very responsible, maybe we're planning for retirement. But my point is, is that we're not, we, as a species, we're not very good at, <laughs> at thinking in the long term. And what the long term even means as an, as an idea is actually sort of, sort of a joke. And um, so Holocene's was a distillation of all of these different thoughts that came from thinking about the confluence of sort of beauty and horror in that image, the incidences of flooding around the world. The fact that I had, I had heard for the very first time this um, word Holocene, which to me also sort of phonetically resonates with sort of different images, right? Holocene. I felt like we are living in a Holocene. What does that mean? And I, I come out of theater originally. And so a Holocene is sort of a very haunting image. Um, and uh, I guess I was curious, um, well, as I researched, as I researched, learned more, that word came up and I realized I was, I was ignorant of the geologic epic we even lived in. Um, I really had maybe a 45 or 60 second flash one day, like a, an image, a series of images. And there was a man sitting in a room, reading a newspaper, totally normal room. And the room started to fill with water slowly. And as the, as the water filled the room, rather than sort of acting with, you know, with alarm of any kind, he just kept on turning the pages of the newspaper and took a breath right before the water went over his head and it kept going and he kept on turning the pages. And eventually the, the newspaper started to disintegrate in his hands. 
And so then I had to figure out what that image was. I didn't know how to, I, I figured, you know, I knew it was an idea that I wanted to pursue, but I didn't know what it meant or where it came from. So only later did it sort of connect to these other things I'd been reading about. Um, and it ended up in becoming Holocenes, which is this aquarium-like sculpture that we place in public space. And we've, um, we've done it previously in three cities. London is our, the first time out of North America. Um, this is Annie Saunders, who's performing the tank, who's sitting over there right now. Hi, everybody. Um, and we um, perform it for durations of anywhere from five to 12 hours at a time. And inside the tank, performers cycle through performing everyday behaviors that we've gathered um, through a video submission process from people around the world. So people have sent us lots of videos of making tea, lots of videos of making the bed. Also some sort of like fantastical rituals. But what I found really interesting was that people make the bed sort of similarly all over the world and people sort of make tea similarly all over the world. And um, so we've brought, uh, uh, I guess, a little menagerie of those rituals into the tank. And this one is, um, we call it cleaning. And it's a woman, um, a woman in Moscow submitted a video of her cleaning her stairwell and the windows in her stairwell. Um, and maybe a 90 second video taken with her while rocking out to music on her you know, iPhone. Um, and th that cycle of behaviors unfolds for 35 minutes to an hour, depending on which piece we're talking about. Um, this is a man coiling a garden hose. Yes. And um, there are, let's see what other pictures there are actually. This is also a man coiling a garden hose. And so the water actually goes, what's unique about this particular installation is that there's a strong series of pumps that are connected to it, which um, allows the, us to control the level of the water. So the tank fills and drains with water in about 45 to 50 seconds. Um, so we basically created like a, fl a flooding machine. And as the, as the water ebbs and flows, rather than, rather, than, um, rather than react as if it's a crisis, what the performers do is they just adapt their behavior. So, the, so this woman's selling fruit in a market and she's trying to, keep, she's trying to make p piles of fruit. She's trying to keep her fruit from getting destroyed. And she's trying to keep her fruit, fruit together. So that's all her action is. When the water is low, she creates her piles. When the water, as the water rises, she tries to gather it and protect it and save it. And it's that cycle. And so there's something, um, something about climate change that I found most fascinating is that uh, as the more I've studied it, actually the issue is about um, behavioral science, actually, rather than about climate science in terms of how we make decisions and think in the long term and when, as when we as a species evolved to uh, feel empathy as we do. Right, everybody feels empathy at sort of a different range, but at the same time, um, there are certain there are certainly limits and that has very much to do with how we've evolved and, and how we make decisions as individuals and as a species. And so the piece um, has no words and, and is influenced by a lot of these ideas. But I've heard eight-year-olds uh, arguing about whether it was about death or mermaids um, or dreaming. And I think those are all valid answers. At the same time, people also, uh, I like that the piece is slightly enigmatic. It allows people to say, like, what is this? Why is this? It's operating in public space in the tr tradition of public spectacle. And, and therefore, like a moth to a flame, it, it draws people in. But it's not, it's not, the Cirque, du, it's not Cirque du Soleil. Um, it moves very slowly. And it is enigmatic. And I try to create a conversation around the piece um, where you know, uh, viewers are really having a conversation about what this might be, why it might be. And if they do scratch the surface and start um, having a conversation, and basically we also try to uh, have lots of 
local organizations which are involved in climate change or environment, you know, environmental issues. We, par we tend to partner with them and fold them into the conversation and try to have them have conversations in the context of the performance as well in order to, um, in order to make the piece local. Um, this piece is being performed with Tuesday's Guardian, which has a really horrific picture of um, Syrian refugees in life jackets um, on it. So the, the, the news like, just keeps, um, the news keeps, keeps pace with the piece. Um, and this is just a, a picture of the, of the development of the work. Um, we started with water containers that we cut the top off of to figure out how to make it safe and um, what the engineering would be like. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop there. Hello, I'm Judith, I'm arts admin. I think Helen asked me to join this panel because she hadn't got enough arts and crisis in her life already, so she wanted a bit more. <laughs> We're in opposite offices uh, to each other in this building, Toynbee Studios, which is just over by Allgate East. And uh, this is quite, I mean, we're a producing organisation. We produce lots and lots of projects, nothing on the scale of Artichoke, but, but lots of them all over the place, locally, nationally and internationally, and some in theatres and some in galleries and, and uh, some out, outside. Um, and sort of quite seriously, I mean, we've been more and more recently, many of the artist projects, artists coming to us, have wanted to engage on really serious issues. It's, not, it's something we're really well willing and want to do, but it's not that we're telling the artist to do that. They're coming to us with, I think, more and more. And I think people are engaging. The world's not a great place at the moment, as we all know. So that, that I think it's, it's something. And for me, it's really important because there's lots of questions, what's the role of the artists? Are the artists the conscience of society? Should they stay away from politics? We'll probably ask all these questions later. We don't want to t be taking the moral high ground either, but from my point of view, artists must speak out. They're, they're citizens of the world, they're brilliant communicators. And if they've got the ability to let us imagine, imagine change and, and think again about where we're going, then they need to do that. And after all, the politicians aren't doing a great job of it, so artists maybe can do a better one. Um, we can't make artists make work about issues, but if, if it's coming from the heart, I think they're the best people to do it. And over the years, we've done many. Um, and I'm going to show you some of the, 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 the issue ones. But first of all, I will begin with Dominoes, which Helen mentioned, which is a cheerful one. And this is one that sort of links up the city. And the, this has been done, as Helen said, in 17 cities in the world. And basically, all it is is a line of breeze blocks. But what all? all it is is a line of breeze blocks. <laughs> but what is so wonderful is, and it's not I, the first time we ever did it, I saw these people charging down the street with a level of excitement. And I said to myself, this is not the Sultan's elephant. This is just breeze blocks. But it, it picks up that energy and is completely wonderful. The responses in everywhere it's been has been marvellous. So it's cheerful, it links cities. And here, uh, of course, typical for, this is Marseille, uh, typical for Helen, we're doing the most complicated one we've ever done in the shortest time. Uh, <laughs> and it's tomorrow. In the most difficult place. In the most difficult place. Uh, it, was, it starts at Monument tomorrow at half past six, it, and it goes, leads from the monument in three different directions. And there are fiery endings, that's all I'll tell you. Uh, each one, one near the Gherkin. 
Gherkin. There have been so many people who are working on it. Uh, one, uh, there's one at the, near the Gherkin, there's one at the Barbican, and there's one at Paternotter Square next to St Paul's. So that is a cheerful and, and lovely project that brings everybody together. But some of these others, I'm going to maybe a bit more of an issue. And I think, Lars, you just mentioned beauty and horror. This is a project by an artist we work with called Graham Miller, who went to film the sky in places where refugees had fallen from aeroplanes, trying mm -hmm. to get in America and to Europe. And these are sort of a memorial to these people. Of course, the minute the aeroplane lands, they fall to the ground. And there are surprisingly many of them, which is horrendous. So this is, this is I love this project because it's so beautiful. You think, what a beautiful image. And then you realize what it is and what it's talking about. Uh, and it is that thing you, you talked about, Lars, with, with the beauty and the horror of it. Um, this is another project by a Lebanese artist, uh, Tanya El Khoury, which actually is personalising some of the earliest victims of the Syrian war, where the audience wearing plastic macs lie on these graves of Syrians who've died and listen to the stories told by their families of their personal lives and their names. So it's, again, it's putting, losing the numbers of the people who died at the beginning of the Syrian war and making them into people. Uh, leading on to a project we did only last, uh, a few months ago called the Empathy Museum, which is an artist called Claire Patey. And um, this was, again, a very missing <coughs> ingredient in what we're doing at the moment. We need a lot of empathy. And this is called A Mile in My Shoes, where you wore somebody else's shoes and walked half a mile one way and turned around and came back. So you walked a mile listening to the story of that person and wearing their shoes. You had to wear their shoes. That was absolutely part of it. You couldn't wear your own. Uh, it was really beautiful, and that's carrying on and continuing to do that. Uh, climate is, of course, the hardest thing. It is a hard thing to make projects about. It's hard to be optimistic. You don't, I don't think you can be totally pessimistic because people feel uh, they can't do anything. We've done lots and lots of projects on climate. This was a, an office in a tree where you rented the office, but you paid the money to the tree. Uh, we've done lots of sort of guerrilla projects like this in the city here, this in the city here, which might still be here, but I don't know where it is, <laughs> and I wouldn't say even if I did. Um, uh, this was, humour might work. This was a project by an artist called Richard de Dominici who uh, responded to, I think it was Marcus Waring, said the food in pubs was so bad you'd be better getting on a plane to have dinner. So Richard made a plane that never flew and landed on the, it was stayed on the ground and he fed you uh, a, a greener, but probably just as disgusting, plain food cafe. Um, this is a project that is called Seven Promises, um, where the audience have to go up and make a promise and every time they make a promise they get a shot of vodka. And the first promise is something simple like go to uh, a farmer's market. But as, as it goes on the promises get harder and harder so never have any more children, never fly, uh, be vegan for the rest of your life. And actually of course the point is the drunker you get the more outrageous promises you make. But the point is more than that, it's the conversations between the audience is going up and making those promises that are so fascinating. Um, this, oh, that's the same one. Actually, there's your general manager and there's your executive director in the middle of that image. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what promise he made, but I, I just discovered that this morning. Um, more conversations. This happened as part of our Two Degrees Festival a couple of years ago, which was, which was asking people to come to the city, to the Gherkin, and actually have conversations, audiences and bankers and everybody local to talk with a copy of the Financial Times and talk about a, an article they saw in it together. 
It was a wonderful breakfast, but really fascinating conversations. More conversations. This was, again, not very long ago, we did a project by Steve Lambert, which we took this sign to five sites in the city. And you could vote whether you thought that capitalism worked for you. And what was so fascinating is I was always shocked by somebody I'd expect to say yes, but didn't, or the other way around. And it was more the conversation that made it interesting. People arguing about whether it worked or didn't it work, and they didn't think it worked, but then they owned a house, so that means it should. And, and these conversations in various different parts of London, some very poor and some richer, and it was a very successful project. Um, this is a rather more subtle and gentle project it's called the Museum of Water with an artist called Amy Sharrox, where we have already, I think we've got 500 bottles of water that people give, donate, and it could be your baby's first bath water, it could be water from the Ganges, it could be an empty bottle of water from a place where there's a drought, it could be water from a flood. There is a vial of water from, what is it, 129,000 years old from the... Uh, the uh, ice core in the Arctic. Uh, so it's, and that's growing. She's just doing a version next week, actually, in Rotterdam. I'm going to do a big version in Perth, Australia soon. This was actually underneath Somerset House, if any of you have been into the dead house under there. And then this is another project about how we make our clothes. This is by the company Metis. Uh, and this is, an, you go along as an audience, you cannot not be involved, you have to be a factory and you have to make decisions. You're a Chinese factory, you're making clothes, how do you run your factory without going bankrupt? How nice or nasty are you to your staff? What do you do? And actually it's all about cheap clothes making and it's all about environment as well. So you leave having taken part of it. I think many of the projects we do, actually that's part of it to make the conversation happen, um, which I think is is really where the only thing we can do and artists can do. And this is the last one, again, another beautiful project, but sort of, this happened 2009, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. 11. 12, sorry, right? There's yeah. 11 on this. Okay, I forgot. <laughs> you see, we do so many, I get all my years muddled up. So this was an article, uh, this is a project by an art, art, uh, pr artist called Michael Pinsky, which, which showed the line of where London could flood uh, it, and it's 28 metres, I think. And so obviously this is, this is uh, Covent Garden and this is Paternoster Square, right by St Paul's. Um, and again, that is beautiful, but it's also signalling something that's much more serious. So it's, it's, but, you know, I think the interesting conversation maybe we could have now is, is does it work? Is it just people who engage in this already? Uh, do they just think that's beautiful, I get it, and go away and nothing changes? Or does it reach other people? Um, I think I feel also very strongly about if arts can do anything about climate, one thing it has to do is, is not accept uh, funding from uh, oil companies. And, so, and it's a sort of campaign that many of us have been behind for a long time because we've stopped taking sponsorship from tobacco companies because we realise what that does to us. It's time we did this as well. Um, but we're still, we're still, there is the issue of who we're talking to. Are we preaching to the choir? Does it make any difference? Does it affect the public? Does it affect policy makers? Um, there is nothing as serious as the climate crisis. There is nothing. I mean, despite this is what is so frightening. June 2016 was the hottest since records began in 1880. The Arctic is melting at an unprecedented rate. Temperatures in Iraq reached 54 degrees Celsius last week. If the refugee crisis is a crisis now, then imagine what it's going to be like in 50 years or 100 years' time. And that's why we have to act quickly. And if the politicians, it may be arts make no difference at all, but I don't think we've got an option but other than keep trying. And that, that's all I try and do.
it's more interesting for you all to have a conversation with us, do you think? We don't want to have a conversation on our own with Oh, them. no, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'll ask a question to start everybody off. What I would like you to do, and I'm going to be speaking to you about this, <laughs> is to really <laughs> create a big noise and hold up some traffic. Because I am really, really upset about the amount of air pollution that we have in London. And I think that would be a wonderful theme. Great question. <laughs> Will you please do it? <laughs> I think that all our projects are very short-lived, but the f for the four days, I mean, tomorrow, there is no traffic in the City of London. We shut all the roads. Lumiere that you referred to in London in January, we close the roads every night for four nights. And what is really interesting is that we have very strong partnerships with agencies across London when we're working here. So, And in particular, Transport for London are hugely important to us in terms of the planning of the event. And there is a psychological change that can be made. It takes a lot of painstaking negotiation. I'll illustrate with this little example. When we were planning Lumiere, we wanted it to run from Thursday to Sunday. And we wanted it to start when it got dark, which was at five, and run till midnight. And we had all these conversations about commuters and shoppers and patterns of behavior and getting home, and people being upset. And what you have to understand about if you're Transport for London is you have a really horrible life because most of the time you're running a perfectly great service, public service, keeping the roads running, buses, tubes, all that kind of stuff. But as soon as anything goes wrong, everybody starts shouting at you. You know, the London Bridge situation, all of these kind of things. You're in the public flat line all the time. So I rock up and say, hey, let's shut all the streets. Let's alter the, you know, and they're just going, please, God, send this woman away. We really can't be doing with this because the perception from inside the organization is a defensive, how do we keep the routines of the city running? How do we get people to work and back on time? How do we get them to the shops and back on time? How do we not impede commerce and trade? And what is hard if you're a transport planner is to understand that actually if you break those routines with something beautiful or positive or different, actually people like it. So the very interesting conversation was about Thursday. Thursday's a really important night in London. And one of the very early conversations, they said, you can't have Thursday. And I said, but tell me why not? And they said, because you can't interfere with the commuters. And I said, when's that? And they said, five till six thirty. And then you can't and then you can't interfere with late night shopping. And I said, okay, when's that? And they said, well seven till nine thirty. And I went, okay. And then you can't this is a precy of what went on. You can't bump into the nighttime economy. You wouldn't want to bump into the nighttime. So I went, okay, when's that? And they said, well like eleven onwards. And I said, so there's like an hour and a half on Thursday when it's okay. And they said, yeah. And I said, you know all those people you've described? We like to call them the audience. <laughs> so this is not to belittle anything that they're saying, but you're trained, if you're a transport planner, to think in segments, to think, how do I deliver for these people? How do I deliver for these people? How do I deliver for these people? Whereas we as producers are thinking all the time about how do we interest people, not categories of people, in this stuff that we're doing. And so 
the sea change is, is changing the mindset of who we think a city is for and what we do we think it's a machine that you know as I say gets you to work gets you back gets you to the shops gets you back and we've all been irritated I who hasn't been irritated when our chosen mode of transport messes up we're just cross because we think well you know I pay for this service it should work but the reality is that cities I think can have their lives interrupted by these moments and in relation to your point when we interrupt them on a big scale like we're going to do on Saturday and Sunday we do shut everything down but it takes an enormous amount of goodwill and understanding on the part of something like Transport for London who I think are a remarkable open organisation and are trying their hardest to both deliver in a traditional sense and to foresee the future hence the big um, decisions around more pedestrianisation, the whole bike culture that started over the last 10 years, all of that kind of stuff. But it just takes time for people to change their mind about what's important. And currently what's important is the petrol engine, because we all demand that we want to get to where we want to get to as fast as possible. So, you know, we all have a part to play in changing the way people think, I think. It just quickly reminded me of a film we produced a little while ago, a three-minute film by artists Ackroyd and Harvey, who do a lot of work about environment, but they made this very beautiful film at the time of the big Icelandic um, volcano. And they live in Dorking, so they're used to the planes going above them all the time. And they filmed the sky uh, with no, no planes, silence, and listening to the bird's song and quiet. And they made this whole film, bef images before that, of the, of the, the uh, trails of the planes and then showed the silence. And then they ended it with just, it was very short, they just ended it with um, the fact that because of the lack of planes, the uh, volcano was the first carbon neutral volcano that has ever <laughs> erupted, which was just summed it up really. And it was just very beautifully, if you could try and do that in London. Maybe Helen could persuade them. But well, maybe yes. we could measure it on, uh, on Sunday when we shut the streets. So do we have other questions? Yes. Very interested to know how you all define success and failure of these events. Do you look at specific KPIs of whatever it may be for footfall or people that turn up, or when does this work and when does it not? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think people are, you know, it's it's a, like a, it's an age of metrics and. Um, in sports and elsewhere where there used to be sort of intangibles and I always as an artist sort of have relied on the intelligibles in terms of the intangibles rather in terms of how the how the place feels and how the crowd feels and I'd rather have a crowd that's you know 50 people which is very engaged and and, and wrapped and seems like there's a kind of communication between whatever the performance happens to be than 5,000 people who couldn't really care less but are taking selfies and smoking cigarettes and taking naps so, um, but 5,000 versus 50 in the world of almost everybody is going to be able to no-brainer. 5,000 is a success, 50 is a failure. Um, how do you measure how you move one person and what moving them or inspiring them or informing them could possibly lead to in the future for that person and everybody they know? It's, impos it's, a, it's impossible, but that's, that's why I do what I do. Um, so, I acknowledge that metrics are absolutely a part of the way that work is deemed to be effective or not effective, but I don't put much stake in that measurement. I think it's, it, has, it has everything to do with quality versus quantity for me. Hmm. I mean, similarly, we, we, we measure, you know, audience numbers, you look at, you talk to people, you get the press, you get a feel, and you, you, we have to write evaluation stuff all the time for projects. But if you were to say to me how many people saw that project with a ring around, around the, you know, the, uh, the column, 
did they go away and change their mind? Did they write to the MP about something to do with climate change? Did they think differently? Of course we can't. We can't prove anything. But one can only hope that you have an effect, a cumulative effect, I think, through seeing lots of projects. And it was Franny Armstrong, I think, made that film called The Something of Something, yeah, The Age of Stupid, it was called. And, and people asked her that question, everybody coming is already coming because it's <coughs> they're totally engaged in climate change. She said, yes, but everybody's got an aunt, an uncle, a niece, a next-door neighbour, and actually you just have to hope that they keep talking to other people, and eventually you get there. But the problem is with climate change, we haven't really got, and eventually we have to hurry. Thank you. Thanks to Lars, Jan and Judith Knight for joining me and to the Broadgate Welcome Centre for hosting the talk. London's Burning is produced by Artichoke with founding sponsorship from the City of London Corporation and support from Arts Council England and the Department for Media, Culture and Sport. The London's Burning talk series is in association with 5 by 15 You can listen and download other podcasts from this series by searching for Artichoke Trust on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Thank you.